Listener Production. Shares, Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday Mailbag Edition. And the first one we've recorded in just over a month. So we are very excited to be back behind the microphones. When I say we, I mean, of course, myself. I'm Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool. He is the straw man, the man of straw. doesn't quite work as well as Man of Steel. Anyway, he is, of course, Andrew Page. How are you, mate? I'm very good, sir. As I said uh, the other day, welcome back. Good to have you Thank back you. in the hot seat. Oh, and great to have a, our first mailbag recording. I've missed changing. You might have missed doing these podcasts. So I'm, uh, oh, look, we fell back into it on Friday. So uh, we will, I'm sure, do exactly the same this time around. Speaking of falling back into it, mate, it was neglectful of me on, on Friday not to inquire uh, into into <laughs> what are you laughing about? I didn't I didn't actually notice until you mentioned it just just did, then. But yeah, go did, on. Go didn't, notice, didn't notice what? No, no, no. Please, I interrupted you. Oh, I, I, I'm just curious. What you thought you missed out on? No, I might have. I might. <laughs> you're really going to milk this, <laughs> <aren't you? laughs> Andrew? What is Strawman.com? We're a private online investment club. Of course you are. Let's get to the first of our questions <laughs> uh, from our wonderful listeners. By the way, up front, uh, thank you for sending the questions in while we're away. If you have questions, comments, or feedback for the podcast, hit us up on all the socials. Info at fool.com.au is the email address for those who prefer to use email or have longer questions or comments to make. Um, we're on all. The- are you on the threads? That's something I did over the break. I, uh, on the I, network. I, I did. I gave it a go and I've already given up on it. Have you really? I, there you go. Yeah. I don't know. What's the, what's the vibe like? Uh, it's, I find it a, it's a little too... I, I'm, a, I'm not a cynic, but I'm a skeptic, right? And so it's all very happy and, oh, this is lovely. This is such a nice place to be. It's so much better than those other networks. I'm like, that's how they all start. You know, yeah. the Twitter users still say, oh, back in 20, yeah, 2009, yeah. this is such a wonderful place. Now they wrecked it. It was like, oh. So the vibe's really lovely. It's a really, really cool, nice place. Everyone's happy. It's fun and jokes and kindness and it's, uh, I, I, I only I only fear that it won't be that good for that long. Uh, I am on threads. Uh, I assume, so if you're on, are you on Insta too then or just threads? I had, yeah, well, I had to be to get on Yeah, threads. that's what I was going to say. And I realized I have a, I did have an Insta account. I mean, I, I signed up a gazillion yeah, years okay. ago, never since once posted or anything. So <laughs> I couldn't even tell you what the handle is. There's no, <laughs> there's no point because yeah. I never post there. But um, I was going to say, you're not agree exclusively on Twitter, but that is still true. You're only on Twitter, courtesy. Oh, now X. That was the big news of the week. Well, we we had it on the agenda for Friday. We just we ran out of time for some. <laughs> Maybe we didn't run as, out of time. as we is ran, our want. We ran so woefully over time. <laughs> but it's such. I mean, look, we have to talk about it now very quickly. <laughs> now, let's. I think you can reasonably objectively say that that uh, Elon's made a bit of a mess of things. Oh, um, and and it continues to appear appear like a bit of a, a train wreck in slow motion. Mm. But this is for me the 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 lesson or the re-lesson, because I've, I've had this one many times before, is mm. that the power of network effects, you just mm. cannot be overstated. Mm. So you've, you've, you've had, um, I mean, just all kinds of crazy things happen on Twitter. Yes. And then if anyone, was gonna, if anyone was gonna challenge the king, <laughs> mm. it would be meta, right? Because yeah. they've, got a, they've yeah. got a pre-built network that you just have to say, click on this, right. and we're gonna replicate the Twitter experience over here. 
Yeah. And so that With the account, you already of, have, you can, oh. you can seamlessly switch between Insta and threads, click a button at the top of your page. Like it's, they've made yep. it, it, it's exactly what you, it's probably the only thing that could have challenged. Yes. For, and, and, oh, well, and the technology is not hard, right? No, like no. The, the, like the, the software that runs this is not hard. Oh, mm-hmm. here's, here's me saying it from my armchair. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But I'm sure, I think oh, most techies. A million dollar social network. Easy, you yeah. know, I'm sure, look, Jack Dorsey yeah. wrote it originally in his garage, right? So it's not, yeah, I'm it's not, not, it's not, it's not like a large language chat GPT model kind of thing, yeah. but, but the, the the building the network is the super hard thing. Yeah. And so as I understand it, they had 100 million users like in some really insane short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And again, I haven't kept up, uh, up to date with it, but it doesn't feel as though it's gotten that much traction. And just again, that is... It is it is something that is incredibly noteworthy, and we we talk a bit about moats when it comes to investing. Yeah. And there are a variety of different moats, but again, the, for me, network effects, network effects, network effects. They are the most potent, strongest moat uh, imaginable. Yes. And this latest sort of um, uh, uh, example just mm. just highlights that again for me. Yeah, I think that's right, mate. I. It is network effect is as you say. It is the only thing that matters, and it's fascinating that even with everybody, and the other thing too is you know the the uh, it's network effect, but it's also more than that. I think and and network well, it's probably a, a turbocharged network effect. The the only network effect of simply you know it's a business value question of the more users there are, the more users they tend to attract because more people are yep. there. That that's brute force. What I think is fascinating about the Twitter or the X as we need to, well, I'm not, I don't know, I'll probably call it Twitter just out of spite, but uh, Twitter and threads is there are almost certainly more people using Instagram than Twitter. I'm sure that's true. And so in theory, it should be true that threads was going to, as soon as everyone transferred across, just smash Twitter. But the mm-hmm. combination of behavioral habits and the fact that it's not just total network, but it's actually curated network. So not only do I, if I go to, from Twitter to threads, I can in theory talk to more people, but for two things. Yep. One is not everyone who follows me on Twitter automatically follows me on threads. So yep. if I want to be heard by more people, read by more people, I'm going to therefore want to be in that place. But also to the people I choose to follow, I've got to kind of re-curate that list. And I, I, I actually posted on threads of all things, funnily enough. I said, you know, how long until Meta comes up with an ability to effectively copy your user list on Twitter and import that, download and upload or something into Thread, so you can you know replicate that experience because well, that was the that was the miss, right? And that, that's exactly what it is because yep. I can I can have access to more people, I can broadcast. You know, it's, it's the old the old radio thing of you know I can broadcast. If you don't have a radio receiver, I get what I'm broadcasting. I'm wasting my time. Yep. And it's that it's that it's that you know match up of not just the overall size of the network, but the idea of how you bring it together. Um, that that really makes the the difference. I think in my in my view anyway. Yep. And I think the, the, other, the other interesting takeaway here is that there are certain um, businesses which I think very naturally tend towards a monopoly mm. um, in, in the sense that I can't be bothered having three Twitters or four mm. Twitters. You know, it's, it's, too, it's, it's too much work. Even if I'm a passive consumer, I'm not someone who actively tweets or threads or whatever the, the verb is. It's, it's, I think you're, you're going to go to, if there's three parties in town uh, on a given night, 
I'm just going to go to the biggest, best one, right? I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to go to all of them. Or if I, if I, the only way I'm going to go is if there is somehow you hit this magic tipping point where everyone organically decides to more or less go at the same time. Yeah. It's not that it's impossible. You'll find yeah, examples yeah. of it, but it's very, 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 very hard. Yeah. And even if Threads has got some sort of staying power, it's just like I think mm-hmm. unless you're a hardcore social media junkie, it's it mm-hmm. is it is too much work yeah. either to follow or to or to post on multiple platforms. So yeah, I, I anyway, it's it's fascinating, and and look, this story is only just getting going because, you know, he, he's, he's he, there was a video released recently where um, Elron is is saying that he wants to own half of the uh, financial services market <laughs> globally. It's like, dude, yeah, ambitious, ambitious. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Yeah, um, I, yeah, it would be fascinating to see. Anyway, all of which was to say, we are on those devices and frankly by this sunday when you're listening to this i don't know what it's going to be called uh the website is still is already now got the x branding uh the app is still twitter and tweet deck is still tweet deck but no longer it's apparently no longer tweets it's going to be called something else now and anyway i uh yeah good luck twitter anymore uh if you're on if you're on twitter slash x you can follow andrew at sage underscore simeon or at strawman invest you can follow me on twitter on threads and on insta all at tmf scott p uh do that come and say good day uh or facebook at scott uh, facebook.com uh, forward slash scott phillips money uh mate let's um let's get into some questions speaking of which uh from our listeners and followers we got a couple uh, over the past couple of weeks uh one from um that dude on twitter who says thanks for answering my previous question and i hope you're enjoying your trip around australia i absolutely did loved it not so much around kind of through the middle but it was brilliant um that dude says as a previous high school educator and business owner i tried and tried to teach students about finance money and economics at a year 10 level maybe about 15 or 16 year old he says it mostly produced eyes glazed over and drooling with heads on desks Maybe uh, might be the teaching that dude. No, I'm kidding. The key to teaching I found was practical and making it real teaching, creating a car wash within the school, budgeting for a market day, growing and selling vegetables. That was where I got the most response. Merely commenting on your discussions around learning finance in school, the theories and concepts tend to be really hard to convey to kids and young adults, even though it could not be more relevant given yeah. compounding opportunities. Yeah. I think it's a really, really nice point, mate. It's a, I, I, I like the, the practical examples. I think it's absolutely right. Um, yep. The old start, start a small business at school kind of ideas uh, really do tend to, to make some sense. So I, I like that a lot. Yep. He says, uh, on to my drawn out questions. Since you blokes rant so much, I'm offended by that. I thought I would get involved. How dare you? <laughs> so, exactly. So discussing moats. Oh dear, ah, Andrew. Do you think housing as much as discussed as overpriced, et cetera, actually has one of the biggest and most tangible moats, which gives the extreme valuations some relevance given high valuations. Please discuss and join my rant, says that dude. That's a fair point, mate. Is there anything more moaty than the need for shelter? Um, yeah, I, I, look, there's been a lot of really great work done on the concept of moats. Now, moats mm. is a, a term popularized by Buffett, um, uh, more formally sort of defined as sustainable competitive advantages, something that enables you to earn outsized returns and something that you don't see in commodity industries. Because mm. if, if, you know, um, you're selling dirt and I'm selling dirt, you know, the lowest cost producer is always going to win because our products are the same. Yep, yeah, exactly. it's, the, it's, the, it's the same kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. 
So um, when you when you see examples of companies with very high returns mm. um, and sustainably so, it points to something that's going on there. Mm. So a lot of um, Malbison, Michael Malbison's done some great work mm -hmm. on it, some really good books there if you want to dive into the weeds. But broadly speaking, yeah. there's four types of moats. First one is what's called a low cost. I can just produce at much lower cost than you. Maybe you've got a copper mine, I've got a copper mine. Takes you costs you ten dollars to get a ton out of the of the ground. Costs me three dollars. I'm just I'm just going to price you out of the market. Yep. I can I can charge five bucks. It's unprofitable for you. I've got that is a moat. All right, um, it's very simply defined. That, that's a good one. The other ones are brands or intangible values. So maybe I've got uh, like Coca-Cola or Kellogg's or you know something like that. Mm. By the way, talk about trashing one of your most valuable assets. Um, Elon's just put Twitter in the bin. Madness. Like that is like one of the most like if there is anything of value in that company, oh. it's the brand. You know, yeah. Anyway, anyway. So that's so. Uh, you also got patents. Patents belong to this intangible category of moats. It's a really really good one. Um, you've got. I like to call them trapdoor moats, mm -hmm. whereas we other more formally known as switching costs. Great example here might be a zero or something like that, which yeah. is changing. Anyone who's run a business, changing accounting software is like a spinal transplant. It's easy to, it easy to select a different brand, but taking everything with you, leaking oh. up all your systems, working out how to code it, train everybody to do it, get your accountant on board. It's yeah, you might you might save a couple of dollars a month. You might even save a hundred bucks a year. You might save a thousand bucks a year. You're probably still not going to do it because it's like oh, just the hassle involved, right? Too hard. You're not going to do it. There's a reason yeah. why SAP and Oracle are some of the biggest, most profitable <laughs> businesses <laughs> in the world because they do enterprise grade software. And they got their and once a company has spent a hundred million dollars, yeah, and you know, fifteen years of using this, they are not going to tear it all down, build it all up again, retrain everyone, even if it is cheaper, even if it is a little bit better. Never say never, but generally not. They're, they're, they are mm. they are wonderful moats to have if you can yep. if you can, if you can get one of those. And then finally, we've got the network effect, which is probably best described as a telephone. I've got mm. a telephone; it's useless. You are not. You've got a telephone. I got a. All right, it's got mm. a bit of value. A hundred people have a, a telephone. The more nodes on that network, the more valuable it comes. So I'm going very fast here, but they're the broadly they're the four moats. Mm. So housing doesn't really fit in. There's no intangible value to it. There's no real low cost because, I mean, building products are building products. They're the same for any kind of builder, more or less. So he doesn't really have that. Yep. There's no network effects at play. And there's no real switching costs. Maybe some switching costs in terms of stamp duties and that kind of thing. But that's that's the same in all markets. And yet other jurisdictions, other periods of time have not had the elevated uh, prices that, that we're experiencing here. Mm. So I'd say no. I'd say there are no moats. Um, I'd say it's more a function of uh, very poor policy <laughs> and um, a, a financialization, essentially, of, of, of the asset class mm. and, and structurally declining interest rates over a multi-decade period uh, and, and the rise of the two-income household. There's a, there's a bunch of factors I think we can explain it, um, but I don't, I don't know that I would say there's – in other words, is there something that is stopping me – to come in and compete in this space, mm. uh, I don't think so, right? Like, if I want to, if I want to, there might be certain um, planning regulation and stuff I need to navigate. I need to get the right workers in, but these are just normal business challenges. There's nothing that stops me or makes it meaningfully difficult to do. Or am I barking up the wrong tree? I I am tempted to agree with you, disagree with you, and also to do a Julia Gillard, Scott Morrison, reject the premise of the question. All in one, all in one go. go um, I, I think I think look, I think the question is a good one. 
I think that as a asset class, it has partly the reason why I think it'll underperform the ASX, by the way, is also the thing that makes it so moti in in one sense, which is we all want shelter. So, you know, if 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 a human need is uh, yeah, you know, is a human need by definition moti? Yes, because you can't take it away. Mm-hmm. You know, ha- housing doesn't stop being relevant to a market. So it kind of comes down to that. So that's where I'm kind of half agreeing with the, the question. To your Can point, I just very, very I, quickly though, yeah. but that, 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 that is true in the US. It is true in yes. England. Yes. It is true in New Zealand. It is true in all other kinds, every, every market. That yes. is, it's true in Afghanistan. It's true in Bolivia. Correct. Right? But, but there's something different about our market. So I don't, I don't know well, if that explains I think it. This is, but this is where you get to questions of price rather than the asset itself. This is why I'm agreeing, disagreeing, and, and rejecting the premise. So I think housing is moti by definition. But but in that context only, because your point, mate, which is right, is it is a thing which by definition earns superior returns to the owners of that asset. And that's where we need to be a little bit careful with what a moat is. And I think it can be it comes down to definitions at some level, you know. Um, is a brand a moat? Yes, absolutely. But if the business doesn't use it to earn out outsized returns, then either the brand isn't as strong as you thought, or it's not able to, because of the industry dynamics, still deliver those returns. Or you know, there's there, there's a limit to everything. You know, uh, Coke's brand is spectacularly good. It doesn't mean you should pay a million dollars a share for the company, yep. which I think is to your point, Andrew. Which is, yep. do I think property is moti in a, in the sense that it is unable to be? You know, th- there there is no alternative. Right? It's a monopoly. It's a monopoly asset class by definition. Mm-hmm. Uh, shelter is shelter is shelter. Until we all decide we want to sleep in the park voluntarily. It's a it's it's a moti thing. Housing or no housing, everyone will choose housing every single time. Super 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 moti as a monopoly, you know, asset in a sense or an unavoidable asset. But does it necessarily definitionally deliver, as our questioner asks, those excess returns? And that gets back to your point, mate, which is there is nothing fundamental about the four walls and a roof in whatever structure in Australia versus the US, the UK, Germany, Bolivia, Venezuela, Vietnam, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And so I think there's, it, it kind of comes down to that, again, that's why I'm, I'm speaking out of all sides of my mouth, including the front, um, which is to say on one level, yes, I think it's, it's moti, it's an asset class. Does it by definition therefore justify high prices? No, but again, the last bit, where I'll, again, I'll take a 90 degree turn is when you have a limited amount of supply, and a demand that exceeds that supply for an asset you can't do without, it is the perfect... I mean, it's not miles away from nicotine, right? You can't do without it. So therefore, if there's a limited supply, then you can set your own price. People have to buy it or not. Um, if there was a 5th, 6th, 7th, 12th, 15th brand of cigarettes at a certain price, maybe the price could come down. But if you've got something you need or you believe you need, I think it's a need, I think it's fair to say, and there's a limited supply and or... A, a, a demand that grows faster and that goes back to our conversation weeks ago about you know the population question and this housing supply question the planning question um, I don't think it's property's very nature that it's moti I do think the way it is controlled managed and the degree to which supply and demand interact that has led to and frankly legislation and culture that have led to com- in, in a combined way to high prices but I wouldn't make the argument that property is uh, by definition moti and must always be i don't think you can you can make that claim uh the way it's being managed in australia you might argue and maybe justifiably prices will always be high in australia because there is going to be demand that exceeds supply 
that's a reasonable thesis to have. I don't know that I'm that keen. And you got to then work out whether they then go up from here because staying high means you get a zero return. They've got to go higher to get a positive return. And if they fall, you get a negative return. So there's all those pieces working at once. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you've got to remember that this is one of the oldest technologies that we have. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're talking, we're talking about bricks, yeah, right, people? Yeah. You know, okay, there's yeah. induction stovetops and et cetera, et cetera <laughs> these days, but the basic yeah, structure yeah. of a house has not changed a lot over the years. Right. And and this is the nature of capitalism as such. Wherever there's yeah. a buck to be made, you know, I will you will attract competition mm. and there will always be someone who's prepared to take a lower margin as long as it's a, a positive return mm. and outside what I can get from what you might term a risk-free rate, I'm going to do it, right? Yeah. So for whatever reason... Um, you know, a particular state government just sort of said, we're going to open up this national park for development. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not saying they should, but, you know, that there is there is nothing to stop any developer and they're just falling out of trees in Sydney at least. <laughs> um, you know, you can't, can't throw a rock without hitting a developer or a bloody real estate agent. Um, For the record, know, that, Andrew's that, not saying you should throw rocks at developers or real estate agents. He may think that. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not not saying you shouldn't <laughs> throw rocks it, Real estate agents or developers. Um, oh, there but, you go, some of the audience. Thank you. Yeah, well, you know. Go on. Bite my tongue. Um, uh, <laughs> um, I, I love real estate agents. They're just Good. such such noble people. Um, the the But my point Dude, is- We're is that, in the finance industry. Let's not throw rocks too hard. Eh? Oh, look, oh, scumbags <laughs> in our industry yeah, exactly. everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I'm different, Scott. So you got to understand that. It was like, and I'm sure every real estate agent looks themselves in the mirror and want to go, oh, it's, a, it's a bugger of an industry, but I'm a good I'm guy. Different. You know, I'm, exactly. I'm doing the right thing. Oh, gosh, the hypocrisy. Um, but my point is is that that you, you will find someone who's able to, it's like, I can sell this for how much? How much yeah. does it actually cost me in materials and labor yeah. uh, to, to do this? And as long as there is a, and I, I would, look, there are houses in, I'm in a very ordinary suburb. I reckon mm. you could knock it down and uh, it's probably a house across the road. I'm looking out my window now. Across the road from me is probably $2 million. It's not a fancy house. It's just how insane it is in the area <laughs> in Sydney. And and I reckon you could rebuild the whole thing for 400 grand, maybe 500 grand. Right. You know what I mean? Like, okay, maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm completely off. Maybe it costs a million dollars to rebuild it. I highly doubt it. But let's say that. Let's go with that, right? So I can build it for a million, and I can flip it for two. Like, that there is always going to be an incentive there, and there is nothing. And you could look at it equally with 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 covetous eyes and go, oh, I can do that too. And 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 that. So just to get to the idea of a moat, uh, that's yeah. the problem that I yep. have with. It. I don't think it's. I don't think it is moaty. No, fair. Mate, let's get a question from Will who says, Hello, regular listener and long-term contemplator of reaching out to ask a question. I work in a career where I have access to a super fund that is rarely discussed, if ever. I have access to a defined benefits superannuation scheme. I've been wondering with the rates of inflation, whether you believe these funds are still attractive as they once were once upon a time, or whether they are in fact outdated compared to a low-cost, high-growth option provided by most super funds these days. Cheers and fool on. That's from Will. What do you – do you know much about Defined Benefits Super, mate? I, I, I do. Um, oh, dear. I'm pretty sure my dad doesn't listen to the podcast. He, <laughs> I, dad? he does. He knows, he knows I'm going to come on a long run up here. Oh, dear. Okay. Dad, dad was a public servant. Um, for ages, worked okay. in the, the department's been rebranded oh, and renamed. It's essentially the lands department. Anyway, mm. 
back in the day, he was offered a defined benefits scheme and right. it is insanely generous. Yes. So he will get a very large proportion of his full-time salary until mm-hmm. the day he dies. Mm-hmm. And then when he drops off the perch at some point in time, uh, mum will get 75% of that. I mean, it's, it's, it's the kind of stuff that we would looked at the situation in Greece and Spain. And go, oh, it's com- <laughs> that's completely unsustainable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's completely <laughs> unsustainable. And he loves to rub it in, you know, because, you know, guess what? Okay. As, a, as the boomer generation where <laughs> free education and free everything and here you go uh-huh. and woo. Uh-huh. Uh, so it kind of sticks in my craw a little bit, and um, so so the, the answer to the question is well, it depends, and what what benefits are we defining here? Yeah. There was a point in time where that was just like a no brainer. Why would you take the lump sum when you're just like it's, it's indexed to inflation? It's this, it's that. It's just like I can sit on my bum, travel the world, never have to work, and no, nothing can go wrong in that scenario. Yeah. Now, there'll be some people who look at that and go, what are you complaining about? Isn't that a society that we should aspire to? That, mm. you know, we work hard our whole lives and, and we get looked after in our lives? Absolutely. I, I think that's true. Mm. But we also need to operate within a framework of um, sustainability and reality here. And it's just the, re- the reality is, you know, it's like saying we should all have a Ferrari and 10 mansions <laughs> when we retire. It's like, well, yeah, <laughs> but who's going to pay for it? Like, where does it come from? Like, yeah. there's, there is, you can't conjure value out of nothing. And so I guess, what am I saying? I guess I'm saying is that- um, You hate people. <laughs> I, I know, I, I think I'm, I'm really glad. Like, <laughs> as much as I would love to be in a scenario where I was eligible for that kind of thing, yeah. I'm really glad that as a society, we stopped that. Yep. Um, and frankly, and, and sorry, dad, they should have stopped it for you and, and people of your peer group. Because it's not fair to the rest of us, right? And it's just yeah. it's, we we could we could pretend that it's possible, and we're going to get into the same problems that Greece and others got into, mm. and we're seeing riots in France a little while ago with some some part related to pensions or change. It's just mm. it's just it's a horrible scenario because, unfortunately, it's the little person that screwed over because you were promised it. Work hard, we'll give you yes. this. Yeah, yeah. Forty years later, you go woohoo! I've done it. Now give me my due. It's like nah, we're changing the policy. So my heart really goes out for people who got rug pulled in that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, at the same time, uh, it was like, well, let's okay, let's keep doing it and get into a hyperinflationary debt spiral, and we all we all end up on the street. So it, it, it's <laughs> diabolically tough situation. I, I so let me answer the question. Um, okay. The, the 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 if you if the well, the great thing about a defined benefit scheme is it is defined right. Mm. Like you know what you're going to get. Yep. really with a high degree of, of certainty, unless there is a rug pull by the government. Mm-hmm. Um, and barring that not happening, some people will take that, the bird in the hand over the, the two in the bush. It's like, I could do better by investing it in outside of that in a fund that I'm relying on the returns of the market and that might be better. And maybe even history would suggest that if I'm sensible with that, it could be better. But but there is there is a lot. There's no right or wrong answer. It's a personal preference. There's a lot to be said for the certainty that can come with the defined benefit scheme. Love it, mate. That's a really nice summary. Um, I don't have a heap to add. I will say, it depends on the scheme. Uh, it depends on the rules of the scheme. The defined benefit is usually, as you said, may a proportion of your final income or something similar. Um, some of the schemes were really complex. You had to do, contribute something to then be eligible for the scheme. You had to earn a certain number of points. Uh, by contributing a certain amount of money over a certain period of time. So it's a bit of a mess. And I, I, I will just say we should be a little bit careful about giving any views on 
schemes in general because it's very, very, very different. It's like saying, you know, is superannuation a good thing? Yes. Is every super fund therefore worth investing in? No. Yes. Um, yes. Same thing with defined benefits. Generally yeah. speaking, a couple of things. Generally speaking, they were got done away with because they were unaffordable. So mm-hmm. to Andrew's point, the fact they did literally say, no, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to an accumulation phase scheme was because they were unaffordable and too risky for the providers, i.e., us generally because they're normally these days at least public schemes there were some defined benefit private schemes and by the way general motors and ford went bankrupt not because they couldn't make decent cars but because the cost of the promises they'd made yep. in effectively what was a defined benefit scheme were some at some point i can't remember some stupid like half the price of the car or something went yep. in in pension promises that were made to workers years and years and years ago and that's that's exactly why they were changed exactly uh, unfunded liabilities correct and when you say to someone i will i will give you this much money no matter how much i've got put aside for that no matter how much revenue i generate no matter how much profit i make you can have this much per year and by the way you know you got people retiring and living longer and they walked you know a demographic debacle as well as making stupid promises the reason we have accumulation phases now is that no one's on the, they're on the hook for the initial payment and then how that's invested in returns you get are therefore a function of the market rather than a promise of a government now in any given scheme uh depending on how early you start depending on how long you uh, you invest and depending on what you can generate from it you can make some money it's probable that had general motors and ford put the money aside properly and invested it when they made those promises they might still have a very, very profitable scheme that they can absolutely fund. The fact they didn't said, this is, by the way, why super is important. You know, I'm a massive fan of super because the government doesn't say, well, in 24 years time, hopefully we'll have enough tax revenue to pay your pension. They say, here's some money now. If you invest that well, you probably should have enough to fund your own retirement. Therefore, future taxpayers aren't on the hook for a promise I make today. That's why super makes so much sense as a concept uh, and why accumulation super makes much more sense had I said had had GM invest, invested the money for every 18 year old when they first joined the, the factory line and then paid their pension out of that GM's probably got more money than God right now but they didn't yeah. they said we'll worry about it later <laughs> that, that unfunded liability as you said Andrew just overwhelmed them and so that's why they stopped the defined benefit schemes most schemes if you're a late career worker and you haven't accumulated a lot of super most defined benefit the vast bulk of defined benefit schemes will be very 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 attractive to the questioner's question and to your point, Andrew, I, even your old man, had he had super existed when he was 18 and joined the lands office and, and then had that you know put aside regularly, 10, 11, 12% of his salary for 45 yep. years of a working life and then got the compound returns of that, that might even be worth more. There are some people who will retire with super income greater than their salaries. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's, that's a very real thing. It's, it's a great part of super. So in that case, the accumulation f- schemes actually might have been better. But because most people don't contribute enough, don't invest it well enough, defined benefits are, are, are generally safer. I can't tell you what you should do with your circumstance. You'll have to look at the scheme rules. You have to look at the options available, uh, what you have to do to make sure it's maintainable, whether it can be commuted to a lump sum, whether there is any eligibility for um, any dependents after your death if you do go before a partner. Um, so get I, I'm going to cop out get financial advice because the specifics of the fund matter a lot yes. uh, when it comes to whether it's better or worse for you they generally were really 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 good for people um, in late late career particularly those who didn't have super during their early working lives there was no super yeah. scheme so all of a sudden you got a multiple of your last income you had, didn't have to save anything on the way it's like that's great um, and by the way, I, I don't even necessarily begrudge a whole lot of public servants if they've been in jobs where they got paid under the under the commercial odds for a while, and part of the make good was we'll look after you in retirement. Maybe that is fair to the taxpayer overall, uh, but the temporal nature of these things, the fact that the timing 
matters a lot um, makes the schemes really messy to to really genuinely look at in hindsight. Oh yeah, it's is it yeah it's a it's a it's a, a regular source of debate across <laughs> dinner table, you know, and they, and they dad loves to have fun with it, right? You know, because they'll go to the movies and they'll get the senior citizens discount. <laughs> they pay concessional tag, you know, concessional train fares. It's just like it's so like, are you kidding? I can't buy a house, you know. And here's this general anyway. Anyway, I'm gonna stop myself short. Good idea. Um, can, can I can I just like, this is a little bit out of left field, but you talk about unfunded liabilities. Here's a scary thought. Mm. So the US, uh, biggest economy in the world, yeah. budget deficit there is $1.5 trillion. So mm-hmm. they, they spend $1.5 trillion more than they take in through taxes each year at, yep. at the moment. $32 trillion worth of national debt. It's, it's a, there's a <laughs> website counting? called usdebtclock.org. I'm just like, <laughs> it's a scary website. Anyway, what reminded me of that uh, of this in that conversation, there's a section um, doesn't get as much attention as it should, which is US unfu- unfunded liabilities. Right. So these are the promises that they've made to servicemen and women um, and all the various, uh, 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 yeah, like, like defined benefits schemes similarly. Yeah. Over in the US. They have and a that's social security scheme that requires you to put some money aside. The government guarantees your payout. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's $192 trillion in the US, that, or about half a million a dollars for every US citizen in, oh, in the country. God. So it's sort wow. of like the US is getting to, yeah. it's, it's a very interesting set yeah. of circumstances there. It's like, well, how do you, how do you get away with such a massive deficit, yeah. structural deficit for so many years? Well, you, you print the difference is the answer. Um, or you convince other people to buy your debt and, and say that you'll pay it back and probably have to print the difference there. And it's just <laughs> sort of, what's, what I find fascinating about it is, is these things can go on for decades before anything sort of comes to a head. But- Maths, right? <laughs> it's just maths. And uh, I suspect, and this is going to be a real tragedy for a lot of working class people over there that are just really going to, it's going to get to a stage where just like, mm. no, we can't pay it. Yeah. But, 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 but you promise, we don't have the money. Yeah. We don't have it. We just, we just don't have it. And, and it, it, it comes back to not conspiracy theory, just, just to maths. It's maths. like there is, and this thing is growing at a rate that is, in fact, the <laughs> US at the moment, given what's happened with interest rates, the interest bill for the US, I think, mm. is the second or third or fourth largest line item in the budget. Wow, there you go. I, I, anyway, that's a whole other kettle of fish. It is. I just leave that one sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> it's also, by the way, why I'm so keen on super. There are people who say, don't worry about super. Uh, the government will pay your pension in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years when you retire. And not even from an unfunded liabilities perspective per se, Ram. Um, yeah. Because arguably, it's a bit of an accounting thing we're not going to go into now, but the unfunded liability could be considered the same with Australian pension because you have to raise taxes, as in collect taxes, not to raise as in increase them, but raise mm-hmm. the money by collecting mm-hmm. tax mm-hmm. to pay for, pay for pensions. Um, I, I just think we have a moral, to be kicking the can down the road, I think is if we're decent citizens of any country or a society, I think we have a moral responsibility to put money aside for our own retirements rather than assuming the kids will do it. That, that it's, I, I just, it's, it's just, it is just clear as the nose on my face to me that saying let's worry let's let someone else worry about paying for my pension down the track at some point is exactly the gm problem it's the american problem yeah rather than saying actually we have we, we have the wealth the income the opportunity and the legislative framework to to you know put money aside for our own retirements therefore we should i just don't know how that's not just a moral imperative i just i i, I people can differ i get it um but for me the, the, the straight out above and beyond anything else when it comes to super is just yes. simply i have the income 
that allows me to prepare for my own retirement rather than saying to my kids and grandkids, sorry, kids, you're going to have to do it when I get old. Bad luck. Deal with it. Yeah. Um, I, I just Morally, I just don't. We talk about intergenerational inequity and there's lots of areas of that with housing and other things. The simplest one is I'm going to put money aside, my own nuts aside for winter rather than rather requiring someone else to go and collect the nuts for me when I can't, can't do it myself. Oh, where do I – let me sign up to your newsletter. I 100% agree. No. 100, <laughs> 120% agree. It's yeah. just <laughs> – it's not fair to it's steal not. from future generations or expect, you know, to for me to party like it's 1999 yep. and then just yep. think, well, my kids and grandkids will pick up the tab. I wouldn't put that on, on Correct. future Correct. generations. I don't think it's fair to, to, to go the other way when all mm. we're really saying is to square the circle is just, as you say, put some acorns aside yeah. now. Yeah. And 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 it, it, it'll it, it'll be fine. It's um yeah. It, the, the other thing that bothers me a lot when people say the government should pay, <laughs> I think they kind of forget yeah. what the government is yeah. and where the government gets its money from. Correct, it gets correct. it from government is us. It's just the people that we elect to represent. It's us. Mm-hmm. Like we're paying. You know, it's like oh, the government's spending all this money on new what is it? See. Uh, uh, cargo planes or whatever it is, the latest, the latest military expenditure or whatever is like, no, that's our money, right? Like, and, and and whatever they can't make up through taxing us, and I'm all for tax, by the way, is uh, they 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 borrow it. Correct. And otherwise, they borrow it from the future. Correct. And uh, someone's got to pay the piper eventually. It's just the way the world works. Anyway, uh, anyway. Really quickly, I will finish off by saying some people will say, well, hang on. Uh, my parents' pensions were paid for by my taxes and that kind of stuff. That's absolutely true. And that's absolutely on one level unfair. We're paying, I'm paying, well, I'm not paying, yeah, I am actually. My mum's got a, a, so I'm paying my mum's pension as well as saving for my own future. That is double dipping to some degree. Yes, it absolutely is. But you know what? Choose where the buck stops. Uh, you know, we should be yeah. big enough and, and, and ugly enough to say, you know what? You know, it, was it great? No. Do I, do I grudge doing it? No, because, you know, it fares fair and they didn't have the chance to save for it. But that's why super was instituted 30 years ago was to mean we wouldn't have to do that in the future. We just simply have the mechanism now not to. The other thing I will say is, I uh, talk about demographics with GM and Ford. People are getting older and living longer. And I was gonna, you just beat right? me to it. Yeah. And Very so, real world facts. We're living people. a lot longer. <laughs> and yeah. there's fewer working people per retired person now than at any time in history. And that will get worse before it gets better. Yep. And so there's just, there's just a, re- it just I know, it makes no sense. All right. Dem- demographic trends are, you can't, no one can read the future, but when it comes to demography, actually you, you like insanely yep. well. <laughs> China's learning this the hard way with like, yeah, the, yeah. with the one know? child policy. Like I'm every too. expert on the planet is like, it's not going to end well for you guys, yeah. you know? And it just, you can see that coming, living um, a lot, lot longer and a massive bulge from the uh, post-war baby boom. It's just sort of like, yeah, this is high school maths that you can you can do to figure out that's not sustainable. Anyway. Demography is destiny, as, they, as the cool kids Yes, say. yes. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Mate, here's one from Lockie. G'day, Mr. Phillips and Mr. Page. It's very mm. nice. Oh, this gets this gets ugly. Speaking of our dads, must be this gets ugly very quickly, mate. With okay. too much spare time on my hands, I've been back through your archives. Uh-oh. I've begun to notice how unoriginal the podcast is. You discuss <laughs> the same themes and concepts week in and week out, and all the changes the relevance to current affairs. Surely there is more to this big scary beast that is the investing world. Surely there has to be a sexier formula than just saving and investing in responsible stocks that match your risk tolerance. And then Lucky says, I joke, of course. Your help has been invaluable to getting my portfolio on the run. Thanks for your help with understanding how to get involved in the game and for assisting me to not throw out the toys from the cot when the numbers are inevitably read by a few percent. He says, or in the case of my elder shares, read by 48%. 
that could be my fault that was a recommendation of ours i hope not but uh, it may be i now have a very imperfect portfolio that i'm quite happy with and with 51 years left to retire retirement you bastard plenty of time to see the market cycles out question short-term investing now block your kids ears because i need to read this as written before andrew starts his shit says lucky i know i know there are better investments than buying a house but i'm looking to buy a home with some rough and optimistic maths i should have a deposit a deposit worth in about three to five years what suggestion do you have to put the money to work in the meantime term deposits aren't very exciting should i look to big boring stocks etfs or more berkshire or should i look to investment funds latrobe financial offers 12 or 24 month accounts which at this point in time are currently yielding in the low 6% range. This places me at the investor's side of home loans, but I don't know how to evaluate the risk. Is it just trust in the company making responsible loans or are there other ways to look at it? I'm happy to pay the price of admission, says Lockie, or a uh, reference to our comment that volatility is the price of admission. But what sort of return should I be expecting and how should I benchmark shorter term investments? Hmm. Uh, he then goes on to make a suggestion which I'll go through in a minute can't thank you blokes enough full on Lockie love it Lockie great question mate thanks for the uh, thanks for the stitch up at the beginning of the of the question uh, I did read it the first time around and go oh this is going to hurt and then it uh, of course got better uh, we are not particularly original mate um, like the proverbial preacher there is not much new in the Bible but uh, hopefully a reminder every week or so is useful uh, Ram uh, not not uh, before you start your proverbial. Uh, let's uh, let's let's leave uh, let Lockie off the hook here. Uh, let's assume he's going to buy a house for for reasons of uh, other than investment, which I know you're a fan of. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, you're a fan of owner occupier purchases. As well. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Of, course, of course I. So, like, so that's what he, yes. that's what he's looking to do. That's what, so, so you're not going to start your 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 stuff. Uh, instead, you're <laughs> going says, to help. Lockie. He says there's a there's a warning and as a statement, but yes, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. But you're well, not Andrew. It wasn't maybe subconsciously. That's Andrew, you're yeah. not. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, to, no, no, to produce a link, you may have to cut the next fifteen minutes of this one. Um, no, uh, mate. So yeah, three to five years. Lockie's looking to, which is pretty impressive. Well done. Uh, as he gets closer, how should he be investing his savings? I think he needs to be... Actually, um, before I do that, I will do the usual scam. We can't tell Lockie what he should do personally. So when I say he, we, we of course mean generically, how would you think about it? Uh, we can't give anybody, any of our questioners, any of our listeners personal advice. But with that with that said, make it go. Yeah, no, no it's really important to say. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think I think the, the as the time frame narrows, you should buy us cash more and more and more and more. I mean, it's the most ordinary of investments in fact yeah. it's a melting ice cube the, the the rba on a good day wants you <laughs> to lose between two and three percent of your purchase that's right, exactly. each year right exactly. so it's it is a crap investment yeah but it has one saving grace in the sense that it um it's not volatile right like you know <laughs> yes, yes. uh you, you can be sure that if you've got a hundred dollars in in your wallet slash purse uh today uh, you'll at least have, you know, hopefully, well, these days, $94 worth of purchasing power <laughs> next year. But it's not going to it's not gonna drop in half. The 100 bucks uh, like, is still there, exactly. Yeah, yeah. the share market's not going to, yeah. like, the share market could drop in half, right? It uh, could yeah. go down even more. Mm -hmm. uh, could double. <laughs> uh, you, you don't know. But, but the closer I am to needing my money, the more I'm going to forego the potential of longer-term attractive compounding returns and go with cash. Because yep. because I need the cash. Yep. As long as as long as my time horizon for me, look, this is this is just me. But mm. for me, the, the magic number is about three years. If I feel as though I'm likely to need cash within three mm. years, I try and keep it out of the market. 
So if I, if me and my wife are like, we're definitely buying a house in the next couple of years, yeah. I would have a pretty, pretty sizable waiting in cash, knowing full well that should the market continue to do what the market normally does, um, I'm probably going to be worse off. But I don't, I don't want to be in that situation where it, the day that I need my money happens to be the 1987 October crash mm-hmm. or the 2000 tech crash or the 2008 GFC or the 2021 COVID crash. Like the, these things uh, happen pretty regularly actually, but, but unpredictably. And I just don't want to be in that situation where it just gets cut in half. Now, if I'm, if I've got a long-term horizon, I can deal with that with more equanimity and just mm. think, well, it sucks. But, you know, I, I, I know that the actual assets I own are good quality ones and they'll most likely come back. But very hard to say at the time, but I mean, how many times have we lived through it personally? And how many right. times can we reference it historically to know, like yep. my the core of my soul, I know it's true, <laughs> right? Um, that yep. you know, it, this too shall pass. And 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 I just I just don't have that luxury if I need the cash. So that's the short answer. And I just yeah. say very quickly, Go we on. do say the same thing again and again and again and again because you know you know the, these the best investing wisdom doesn't change. It really doesn't. And if you ever find someone out there that's sort of saying, oh, actually now you need to do this and now here's the latest way to make money and this and that it's like that's a big red flag so run a mile if ever you catch us doing that yeah that's right (laughs) there might not there's nothing you're investing in the last 50 years hand on heart there are some new business models which are worthy of consideration we talked about SaaS on friday that that's a new business model and so incorporating those things into the way to think about valuing companies is new but the basic fundamentals of the valuation itself aren't new. The basic ideas of successful businesses, moats, you know, yep. management. Honestly, nothing, 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 nothing has changed in fifty years. So you're absolutely no. right. Yep. Um, I'm going to agree with you, Andrew. With a with a slight. We talked about this a little bit before. With a slight caveat. Um, I, I there's two tracks here. One is if you know you need the money within five years, I would have it in cash today. If you're going to buy something, we're going to publish this one on the so, 20th. So five years is the magic number for you? For me. Now, we're yep. going to publish this on Sunday the 30th of July. If I'm going to buy something on the 30th of July 2028, and that's the date I need the money, five years. Because yep. you know the no one knows what happens between now and then. By the way, I'm going to say in cash, the other addition I make to your point, mate, is you do get interest in the bank. So if you can get three or four percent turn deposit, you still go backwards because of inflation. But you know you can you can reasonably limit that. You can hold the purchasing power of your cash over that period of time. Yeah, good. Now, point. now, now. That said, the second bit which you didn't mention, but I know you, you agree with, is if your purchase date is flexible, then that period shortens massively. Yes, I expect a ten percent return from the share market over the next ten years on average. May it be next year, it may not be in year four, it may not be in year seven. It may be three years of terrible returns before that. But history suggests that over longer time periods, you get closer to that number. So if you said to me, I want to buy a house somewhere between the 30th of July, 2028 and the 30th of July, 2035, then I'm saying one year is all I'd worry about. Mm-hmm. And the reason there is because I expect, no promises, no guarantees, I expect that the value of my investment my value portfolio is higher investing in shares and wearing the volatility as long as i can choose on the 30th on the 30th of july 2028 the five-year period we talked about i go ah oh, bugger the market fell 40 percent last month like it did in march 2020 i can say okay i'll just put off buying the house for another two years and if you can if you have that flexibility i think your total value of your portfolio will be higher over that time period period by investing it actively in, what's well, so active? I don't mean actively as in active versus passive. I mean in growth assets rather than in cash. I, I, would be, I would rather be in growth assets if I have flexibility 
to what that date, you know, that timing is. It won't be fun. You'll get there and you go, oh man, I got so close. It was The market was high only three months ago. Now it's crashed, but I'm going to have to put off buying a house. That's going to suck. And if it's going to suck too much, then go back to, go back to option one. Mm. Uh, but option two, if I had the flexibility to say, I will buy at a time of my choosing, at a market level of my choosing, then I'd rather be invested in growth assets, in particular shares, than, than sitting in cash with an arbitrary five-year period because of the opportunity cost of not, not having that cash working for me. Yeah, yeah, I, lo- I love that. I mean, that, and that is the reality of it, right? Like, if if you if generally speaking, you, it, no one set in sets in stone the exact correct, date correct. they're going to buy a house. Correct. You know, if it turns out my, my aspirational goal in two yes, years, yes. market's down. Eh, okay, that's fine. I'll just continue to rent for a little bit longer. That's that's a perfectly sensible approach. Yep. With with one exception, and this is where I always go back to the uh, the reality of, of behavioral finance. If you're going to get to that point and say, oh, but I'll do it anyway. I'll just buy a cheaper house. And you lock in the loss. I am allergic to locking in losses or locking in poor returns, right? So don't assume you're an option two person and then get to that point and either you or your partner or someone says, oh, let's just do it. I'm sick of waiting. I'm sick of renting. Let's just do it now. Get it over and done with. And you say, well, my portfolio was $200,000. Now it's one hundred and fifty, but I'll just sell it anyway and I'll just buy a cheaper house because of it. You've literally locked in that loss in you've crystallized it in the worst possible way because it might have gone back up to 215 afterwards and you either buy a better house or more expensive house you buy you borrow less money you do whatever else you want with that so just be careful of that if you think you want to go option two but you end up going option one you have to go option one in the first place so just just be true to yourself as we always say uh, know yourself make the decision that's right for you not just financially not not mathematically make the right decision based on what you are likely to do and just be honest with yourself have a, have a really good look in the mirror and have that conversation of in 2028 can i say i'll wait another two years or am i going to say i'm impatient i'm bored i'm over it too much pressure from the partner from the in-laws i'll just do it uh, if that's going to, you're going to be that person then go back to option one and just keep it in cash yep and and just don't uh, too many like i've known a few people recently who have bought a house to live in Mm. And have so when they're talking about it, they're really rationalizing it from a financial standpoint. Mm. And I'm not saying you ignore, I mean, obviously, you don't ignore the financials, but I think they're doing the mistake that I did, which was to only think about the financials. And like, what is what does not fit into your spreadsheet is the incredible, insane value that comes with security, peace of mind you know, um, of, of having somewhere to raise a family and be with your loved ones. It, it is, it, it, it's just, it's worth more than anything, really, frankly, in the world. And so for me, it's like the only financial, consider- again, investment property, entirely different. And yes, I, won't rant, I won't rant on that. But for somewhere to live, <laughs> the only calculus is, can I service this thing without going through huge amounts of stress and, and turmoil and risk. If I can do it with, with a fair, de- with a bit of a margin of safety and some rare, um, uh, with a degree of flexibility, accounting for the, uh, the, the curveballs that life is guaranteed to throw at me, then the answer is yes. Yes, an emph- emphatic yes, like do it. You know, I, I think I, I too often get misunderstood when it comes to property. That's what property is for. It's to live in, right? Now, if you want to talk about leveraging five to one in a negatively yielding asset, okay, we're going, we'll have a chat, right? Like that, is, yeah. that does not make any sense to me whatsoever. But to live somewhere where, again, I'm not stretched super thin and and I, I can sleep at night, man, do it. Do it a hundred times over and a hundred times more on Sunday. Let's go to a question from Mick from Botanic Ridge as he signs off his email. He says, Dear Ram and Scott, I've recently been researching Uranium companies to invest in and have noticed there are some companies that are listed on different stock exchanges around the world. I understand that, he says. However, 
I'm confused by different market capitalizations. For example, a company called NextGen is listed on the Canadian exchange, which is the TSX, the Toronto Stock Exchange, and the Australian ASX. The listed market cap is over $3 billion in Canada, but the listed market cap is only $100 million on the ASX. Fair difference there, he says. I think I have some understanding that foreign shares can't be traded, something along those lines. Long story short, if I invest in a company on the ASX with foreign ties, am I going to get the same returns that our Canadian friends will receive? Is it one in, all in, and the price moves accordingly on the local market, or is there some dilution? I'm very new to grown-up investing, says Mick, and I've learned so much from listening to you guys on the pod machine. They like the pod machine, Ram. Keep up the amazing work. And that's from Mick from Botanic Ridge, as I said. Botanic Ridge sounds beautiful. I don't know where it is, but it's, uh, it sounds like it's somewhere I need to visit. Mate, uh, what's, the, what's the go? $3 billion in Canada, $100 million in the ASX. What's, uh, what, what's Mick missing? I suspect there's, these are CDI instruments, are I they? I assume that's what they are. Chest yeah. depository instruments. Correct. So it's basically the, the one that matters, I suppose, is the primary listing in Canada. And there's a certain amount that are held in a chest depository. Uh, uh, sort of, it's a, um, mm-hmm. I want to use the word derivative. It's not technically a derivative, but it derives its value from the actual shares. Correct. And there's only a lesser value of them that are traded here. You should mm-hmm. still get one for one, excluding currency movements, the same kind of return. Yeah. Um, but there's mo- there's a lot of nuance there, mate. You help me out. Yeah, no, look, uh, Mick, I don't know NextGen particularly, but here's, I, I want you to think about, um, Think about a pizza, because we like pizza analogies. Uh, let's say you've got an eight-slice pizza. What what happens with these CDIs is the Canadian exchange, where there's eight pieces of pizza listed, uh, takes one of those slices away and puts it on the ASX. The whole pizza is still worth what it's worth, but more of the value is, is air quotes, listed in the Canadian exchange. And the Australian CDIs have a proportional interest for what's left. So when you look at the market capitalization on the ASX, you're simply looking at the value of those CDIs that are traded here rather than the value of the entire company as a whole. And that's really, really important to, to make sure you get right. You can, by the way, also have issues on, on the ASX in different ways. If there are companies where there are large numbers of shares that are not traded at all, held by uh, a, a seller, for example, an IPO, those market cap numbers actually can be wrongly stated. So always go back to the company's um, official documents. Don't trust market cap numbers produced by any of the brokers or any of the free websites like Google. Um, but yes, effectively what you're seeing is a fraction of the business that is traded here. Um, it's, it's that eighth piece of pizza, if you like. It can be nine-tenths of the pizza. It can be 95%. It can be 5%, 1%. Uh, but generally, block and square, uh, the old after, the business board after pay, same thing here. So yeah, ignore the market cap by, by country. It is a bit messed up because not every one of the Canadian shares is available as a CDI in Australia. Um, some cases, Australian companies, by the way. So Americans have an American depository receipt, which works the same way in reverse. Uh, BHP is traded here and there. You can't get every BHP share on the on the American markets. The, the primary listing is in Australia. So you're always going to find that. Ignore the market cap. But to your question, yes, absolutely. Like for like, uh, your dollar value investment will increase or decrease at the same rate as the one overseas. As Andrew already said, they're allowing for any currency movements. So be mindful of that. But yes, the Canadian dollar value of a of your investment in the on the TSX and the ASX are exactly the same and will move in exactly the same ways barring exchange movements with one quick one quick difference which is if there's super low liquidity here in Australia you may find there's a lag to that value recognition just because 
it's up to the market to make those numbers the same. Uh, these are free floating instruments. It's entirely possible that a BHP share could trade in Australia for $100 and the American deposit receipts trade at $1. It won't happen because someone will buy the dollar and convert it to an Australian share and make the money. But it's you know in a, in a small business uh, that's less followed, less traded, it's possible for those to diverge by a small margin for a period of time. It's not something you should worry about, uh, but just to just to be intellectually honest with you about the answer, it is possible they don't exactly trade one for one, uh, but over time, that's exactly what you should expect. Rand? Can I venture very close to oh, financial advice <laughs> that is not financial advice? I would say, I would say, why are you investing in uranium stocks? Um, the, the, Nuclear, I'm actually a big proponent of nuclear. I've come around, come okay. around to nuclear, and that's a whole other kettle of fish. Um, <laughs> let's not go there. Radioactive fish at that. <laughs> Three-eyed fish. See what I did that? Exactly. Uh, go on. Blinky. Um, uh, <laughs> but, but for whatever reason, there is increasing, I think, acceptance, and yep. a bit of, there's a bit of a groundswell at the moment for yep. nukes, um, and it's coming, coming at the angle mm-hmm. of uh, reducing carbon emissions. And again, there's a whole very nuanced, complex discussion here. But it has reinvigorated interest in uranium stocks. And I would just to say, again, not the first rodeo, right? This Mm -hmm. has happened again and again and again (laughs) and again. Right. So the big ones on the ASX, I believe, Mm -hmm. are Paladin Energy. Yes, that sounds right. And the other one is uh, ERA. Right. Uh, There's a whole bunch of them. Um, so Paladin is a $2.2 billion company. Like, right. oh, okay, that's that's impressive. Uh, they never make any money. They never, ever make any money. Mm-hmm. I, I can't, as far as oh, maybe there's a year or two, but they generally just bleed cash mm-hmm. and they generally stay afloat by issuing more <laughs> and right. more shares. In fact, since 2019, they've gone from 1.8 million shares outstanding to almost 3 million shares outstanding. Yeah. That's that's yeah. how they stay in business. Uh, it's just a, by the way, it's mate, back in January 1999, ERA shares were $0.22. Cents, now they're $0.04. Cents. Yeah, that's a long I, I, time. And, and, by, that, and on top of all the dilution. $3 at one point in 2007 when all of a sudden it was supposed to be wonderful. <laughs> it's just, it's just, there, are, and you can be right on the nuclear yeah, right. thing. Like that's that right. I, so this, we, we've talked about this before with lithium, right? Because mm-hmm. people go, wow, electrification, electric vehicles, the world needs more lithium. It's like mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that thinking. The, where, where the thinking breakdowns is people mm-hmm. go, well, therefore I'm going to buy lithium stocks. Not understanding that a lot of lithium stocks don't actually produce any lithium. Mm-hmm. They, they're kind of lithium hopefuls that one day we would like to if only this, 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 and this <laughs> happens. Right. And some you know? might possibly maybe one day. Oh, it's so guaranteed. Happen, guaranteed. Yeah. Fortescue yeah. Metals is one of the best investments yeah. you could have made in recent yeah. history. But what you forget is that it, it's the one in 500 that made it. And there's 499 other Fortescue Metals that you've never heard of. And not that only never- that, I was on Sky News Business probably around the same time you were, and Fortescue was a weekend away from going broke when it's oh, yeah. called. Yep. So even even that success was sliding doors. You know, maybe maybe Twiggy's working middle management for BHP right now, right? Oh man, and and so what I am so we're gonna be very careful here. I'm not saying don't invest in in uranium stocks. I'm saying don't invest in uranium stocks. Simply, it's what Howard Marks calls it first order thinking, right? Like yeah. if if the thesis is. We're going to see increasing number of nukes being built, therefore increasing demand for uranium. Therefore, I'm buying uranium stocks. That is, that is, there is. You are, you are jump. And I'm, I'm not trying to sort of put the listener into a box here because it could be a far more nuanced um, uh, investment thesis. Yeah. But make sure it is 
Because if that is the investment thesis, I can, I can almost guarantee statistically, it's going to be a very bad one. What you want to do is say, well, okay, I, I believe there's going to be more demand for uranium. So let me now have a look at companies that actually got some uranium to sell in the first place. They've actually got productions there. They've got access to ports. They've got sale agreements. They've got all the mountains of legislation and, and regulation that, that is around all of that kind of stuff. And that they are viable and, and a strong balance sheet. You, you will find that your universe of investable stocks goes from thousands to yes, that's digits. Right. Probably, probably. That's right. So I just I just want to be careful there because I know that I know that that's a bit of a groundswell at the moment, and I can I can as long as I can remember there has always been someone who goes you uh, nuclear is coming and it was actually back when Fukushima went, went pear shaped right like there was a bit of a renaissance there and then that kind of just put the industry back ten years yeah um, uh, you know and then and then it was going gangbusters in in Europe and then they they made this big fairly dumb move to to well be careful here. I really support the move to renewables, <laughs> but they did it too quickly and they turned all the nukes off yeah, in the meantime. Yeah. So now they've got all these all these massive issues with it. So it's sort of, there can be a lot of good reasons for something to happen. Uh, whether or not it does happen is an entirely That's, other thing. Yes, exactly. exactly. Whether you it know? should happen and whether it will happen are two things. Uh, yeah. Or, or, yeah, be careful about how you... Uh, you you put your worldview into into investing. If, if others don't share it, you're in all sorts of trouble. By all means, you know you got, you got to be right. You can't just be oh, I would have made money if they'd all listened to me. It's like that doesn't matter. You still need to make the money, right? The money doesn't care. It only cares yeah. whether it go, you know the, the profit is made, the share price goes up or not. I'll give you another interesting stat too, and it depends on. I mean, it's different in China, um, mm. but in the West, I think it takes about thirty years to get a nuke built. Yeah. Um, because largely because of the compliance and regulations and stuff mm-hmm. that goes through, but even the engineering is quite intense, and just, it takes so. So even if the government of Australia said we're going full nuclear, we're going to do, we're going to start now. Yeah, I would not expect yeah, that's actual right. demand for uranium yes. to. Yes. I mean, the market will. You watch every uranium stock jump, you know, threefold mm-hmm. on, the, mm-hmm. on the day of the announcement. Yeah, but in terms of them actually selling goods and making sale, making revenue, it's a decade away, if not a lot longer. So. And frankly, at that point, this is the challenge with nukes right now: is that the the pace of renewable technology improvement it means that an investment in even if they approved it today, mm-hmm. a commercial investment in nuclear technology that would take ten or fifteen years to come to fruition with an, with an unknown ROI compared to what else might be available at that point. Again, whether you care, whether you think it's right, whether you think it's wrong, yep. it's kind of irrelevant, right? Because the question is: Are people going to invest in it, knowing they might it might be a massive white elephant, or it might work? I don't know, and that's that's a big question. Yep. Yep. You know what I would do. Um, I would I would invest in companies that uh, do mining services kind of things. Right. They, these are the picks and shovels, right? Yeah, so yeah. there's a lot of companies out there that do engineering services. It doesn't really matter whether the mine's ever viable or not. They get, they get, these guys get paid to build it and service it. You know, like there's, right. there's, there's a smarter way to play these things is all I'm saying. Yep. Mate, let's go to our last question from Rob who says, Hi, Scott and Ram. My name is Rob. And I want to start by saying thank you for your effort in providing free and unbiased advice. Thank you, mate. I started my investing career using large and mid-tier investment firms who charged a percentage of the size of my portfolio. As it grew, the fees uh, charged by my broker grew with zero input from my advisor. This was made worse as the majority of my investments were ETFs and managed funds. So I was losing money to the product owner and to the broking firm I used at the time. It still makes me angry that my fees increased as the size of my portfolio increased. He says, from funds I deposited and the growth in the ETFs, despite almost zero input from my advisor. In fact, the most advice I used to receive was to, quote, take profits and and change the size of a position. 
Now I use the same investment strategy. I invest in ETFs using a low-cost brokerage account. He uses NabTrade, he says, and I dollar cost average. Except this time it's without the fees charged by an investment firm. Smart. I still grab out the money smart compound interest calculator and shake my fist at the sky. That one's for you, Ram, says Rob. <laughs> I'm, and shaking, I'm shaking mine as well. I'm with you. <laughs> and I shudder at what those fees could have amounted to in value for me over the long term. It was your podcast four years ago that gave me the fortitude to leave my broker, open my own brokerage account and invest for myself. For that, I thank you. Your advice has literally saved me thousands and I feel will ultimately increase the value of my portfolio far greater than if I had remained with my investment broker. Now the pleasantries are over. Oh dear, Seth Rob. This is going really well. (laughs) Time for the question. No, it's a question, not a comment, not a criticism, which is not. As we move from the difficult financial times of the COVID pandemic and shift into a higher interest rate period with the possibility of a recession, my question relates to Peter Lynch's One Up on Wall Street. Fantastic book. His six categories of companies, most specifically the turnaround. Mm. I have been researching retail food group. He says in brackets, note, I didn't use a ticker. Well done, Rob. And mm. I noticed that over the last two years, they have changed out management, slowed domestic store closures with possible domestic store count growth in FY24, he says. Uh, they've obtained store count growth in their international division and in December 2022, finalized the case that the ACCC brought against it. The management team prior to the current team treated franchisees poorly, but the company appears to have turned a corner and is now profitable with decent free cash flow. However, there has been significant share dilution of late. I know you both have a history with the company, so please don't feel the need to use it as an example. But what makes a good turnaround story? As rates start to bite, as consumer spending begins to drop, companies will be impacted. What signs should we look for to identify a turnaround? Thank you again for all your help. We agile and long-term, in brackets, aka retail, close bracket investors, really appreciate all the effort. Regards, Rob. Rob, thank you for uh, listening. Thank you for listening so intently. You can throw some of our uh, our stuff back at us. Much appreciated. Uh, Ram, really good question, mate. Uh, turnarounds are one of Peter Lynch's six categories of company. And with circumstances possibly giving rise to the possibility of a turnaround or two, what should Rob and others be looking out for? Yeah, so I mean the other the other famous saying in this domain <laughs> is from Buffett, which is that the tur- yeah <laughs> the turnarounds rarely turn. So yeah. I mean they they do sometimes turn, um, and you can do really well out of them because they, everyone's got so pessimistic on them that that mm. um, you, you tend to be able to pick up a bargain. But they but it is the exception to the rule. Yeah. Um, so what I would want to see with retail food group. Is and look, yeah, I agree. I agree. Some green shoots that are there, but I would want to see more evidence of that. I look at I look at their brands. So was it Donut King, Gloria Jeans, Brumbies, and Crust? I'm thinking here. I've got. It's been a while since I looked. Nice, at the that's a, No, you've done well. I think that's. I can't even any others. That's, that's out of all of, of, of all of those, Pichu, I think maybe on top of that one. Uh, yeah, maybe. Already? Yeah. I actually think there's much brand value in many of those franchises. Um, Brumbies, I think, probably. Uh, these other ones, are they're all in markets that are hyper-competitive. And, I mean, with crust, you're dealing with dominoes. So, careful there, right? Or just the – so you're either someone who likes the cheap and cheerful. I'm going to go to dominoes because they're going to they're be able to offer me better value than, than crust. 
Or I'm someone who likes a decent pizza, in which case I'm going to the local Italian joint, which just does brilliant oven fire, wood fire pizza, right? <laughs> just It's just sort of this sort of in-between. Yeah, I've yeah. never seen a crust sort of do that well. Gloria Jeans, it's a coffee cafe business. I mean, that's just brutally difficult. Uh, Donut King, you know, it's sort of, it's just, I, I, I feel as though these, they, what I think sucked me into retail food group years ago was they had the fun, the fundamentals were fantastic. Like yeah, they were sales growth, the margins, and it was only with the benefit of hindsight. This is a, this is a real. I'm happy to sort of lean into this mistake because with the benefit of mm. hindsight, it was a real mistake. But I think what I failed to see here is that a lot of this value was being created at the expense of the franchisees, as as uh, was said. Yep. And and that's not sustainable. So, so you've got to sort of share the love and share the wealth creation, uh, in which case you don't tend to have as much profitability there. Where we talked, we started off talking about moats. You know, I, I do struggle to see some of the moats that that might emerge from a business mm. like this. There is, I, I went through the list of different ones. There's, there's probably something to be said in terms of brand name for some of these, like Brumbies and whatnot. Mm. Um, there's probably something to be said in terms of low cost. Remember back in the day, it was Michelle's Patisserie. Well, they just they they had a centralized bakery that enabled them to sort of pump out a right. you know, yeah. gazillion cheesecakes yeah, yeah, yeah. much quicker yeah. than you could do if you're doing it at each store level. And there was, so yeah. you could you could sort of get better margins or at least offer lower prices. But they again pushed that so far that the quality was crap and no one bought them at all. So it sort of mm. it was just it was badly managed. Well, it depends on your context. It was brilliantly managed for the person who was running it because they they extracted all the value. Much in the same way that Russia's been brilliantly managed if your name is Vladimir um, <laughs> and, and is terribly managed if you're anyone else, yes, right? Yes. And, and, and so I'm, I am absolutely, you know, once burnt, twice shy on that. Mm. Um, and I, I definitely acknowledge the, the green shoots. I just would, I want to see definitely, this is just me, right? And I haven't, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't done the due diligence that would be required to sort of speak authoritatively mm. on it, but I would, I would certainly want to see more green shoots and I would want to have a clearer idea of the competitive advantage that, that they are offering, offering franchises went and done well are incredible businesses, but they're also, they're, they're, they're tough to get right. Cause you, you do have a balance of interests that, that, that is hard to balance. Mm. And that's kind of what um, uh, Lynch kind of says. Says similar things. Um, I, I, mean, I, th- I think you're, I think you're bang on. Actually, I there's a couple there's a couple of ways I'd, I'd probably think about it. I, I guess your question is what you're looking for the turnaround for. And there's two ways to think about that. One is a business that is rubbish, has been rubbish, but is going to have a bright long term future. In other words, going to go back to growing and growing and growing and growing. That's one. That's one option. The other is simply a turnaround where it goes back to some sort of steady state. It, it's it goes through, it's gone from hundred to five. It goes back to hundred, then stops there. Mm. And in in the in the latter example, you can't rely on long term growth. You're kind of playing a valuation game a little bit more in that case. And so, kind of knowing what you're looking for, and therefore what the play is, how much upside is left, is is worth doing. To your point, though, mate, it's got to be about performance. You simply want to see runs on the board. Buying a business that's bombed out because it might possibly one day start to recover is 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 bad business. Um, the turnaround seldom turn, as Buffett says. You're absolutely right, and I wouldn't play that game at all. I would possibly look at a business that has started to return to growth. Um, your point about that, I guess my, my point about long term growth was the competitive advantage one, mate. I I don't think the the franchises have particularly large competitive advantage. 
I'm not sure they need to for a steady state business. Because if there's a Michelle's petitioning in every in every shopping center in, in Australia, um, unless someone no no one's going to probably try and beat it for cakes in the same shopping center, right? So to some degree, its own presence in a, in a relatively niche market is a bit of protection. Not perfect protection, not the sort of what you'd necessarily look for from a long term success story, mm. but you know if you can say okay, the store count's roughly the same. And on that sort of store count, there should be a reasonable level of profitability just to get back to that point. And I'm going to sell it when the turnaround's complete. That's a different story to whether it's a sustainable long-term business. So I don't tend to do the turnaround yeah. complete, get out. I don't tend to do valuation-only based investments. Uh, that is, you know, crap business, but worth a dollar and selling for 50 cents. I don't tend to do those. I'll do worth a dollar, trading 50 cents, and maybe over time might be worth $2. That's when I'll get interested, right? But, mm-hmm. um, but if you were going to play the turnaround value-only game, you don't necessarily need the new businesses to be wonderful. You just need business the management to stop screwing up. Yep. And if a, if a reasonable level of long-term profitability is 100 and they're at 40 now and the share price is reflecting that, getting back to 80 or 85 or 90 would probably be enough for me to say, okay, I, I saw the turn on opportunity. I saw it start to work. It's played out. It's been done. Now, here's the thing. I don't, I'm not very good at selling, by the way. Here's the thing. You've then got to say, it's done, I'm out. Because if you say it's done, but I'm getting kind of excited about this business, wonder wonder what else it could do, mm-hmm. uh, and it does become that mediocre business Ram talks about about franchises that don't really have all that much to offer, and they're kind of pretty mediocre, and profitability is never going to be through the roof, and there's already Michelle's in every cafe in every bloody shopping center, so is there going to be more upside, more stores? Probably not. Okay, then there's a natural ceiling to the profitability of this business. So don't don't let yourself believe that a turnaround once it's turned has then become a, a high quality business. It may be. There are some that absolutely would be that case, um, but plenty that would turn around and then stop. So look for opportunity, look for some traction uh, at the top and preferably the bottom line. Uh, look for uh, a, a enough of an upside. So if and when it happens, you've got plenty of, of value left, but also when it does happen, Unless you genuinely had already believed, not not convince yourself now, but previously had already believed this was a long-term winner, uh, recognize when the turnaround's been done, uh, when it actually has turned around. Uh, if it becomes another category of company, fine. More often than not, good work, well done. You've made your money. Take your, take your money off the table. Not that I'm a take profits guy, but if literally your thesis is this will turn around and when it's done, I'm done, then make sure you follow through on the original thesis. Yeah, that's such a good point. Uh, it, it's called thesis creep, and I'm a sucker yeah. for it. You know, you buy it for one reason and you hold for another, and yeah. it's just, it's really bad thinking. And it's it's and it's such an easy trap to fall into, <laughs> yeah. particularly when the share price has gone your way. And it's yeah. like, oh, well, maybe maybe go a bit further. Right. Like, no, no, exactly. no, 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 no. <laughs> there are some some that deserve to be in the bottom drawer forever, and there are others that kind of like, well, there was an opportunity, it's <laughs> it's played out, it's time to go. Um, yeah. I would just on your the, the, the comment you made before about location, I think is an important one. But I would also bear in mind that the more often than not, who's going to be really extracting the value there? Probably Westfield, you know, yeah, like if, exactly. You know, when when there is like yeah, someone yeah. doing gangbusters in the food court or whatever, and it's just like they're just going to put the rent up. That's that's where the excess. That, that, that's where the value gets captured. I I, I would say. Mm. So even when you happen to do well, there'll be a a rent seeker and and maybe mm. not. Not used in the nefarious term, but in the very literal yes. term, yeah. <laughs> who will yeah. who will say, oh, "I'm going to just put the rent up." Uh, you don't like it? Oh, go go and move your location to the street. Uh, we'll Correct. and Correct. we'll sell it to someone else who wants to operate in this very high footfall area. Yes. Um, and there are plenty of mediocre businesses out there that that are in that space. Yeah, and and that's okay if you if you're turning around a mediocre business back to mediocre, then it's done. You just just know that that's that's the net result, right? Because otherwise. 
you know, is anyone going to beat Michelle's in, at, at its business? Probably not. But if Wentfield put the rents up and Michelle says, okay, I'm out, someone else comes in and does it instead, there are many, many ways it can go well, many ways it can go badly, unless you have pricing power that, that exceeds that of the business partner you're working with, in this case, the landlord. Uh, then they're going to extract the, their maximum value. By the way, right now, Premier Investments, a business I really like, um, Just Jeans, JJ's, Peter Alexander, Smiggle, others, they are they are pulling out of uh, real estate all over the place. Mm. They've just said, landlords charge too much, we're gone. Now, they can, they're choosing to do that rather than being squeezed out, but equally, yeah. they yeah. wouldn't choose to leave if the rent was okay. So this is a real-world example of where pricing for rentals is going to sit and who's going to win. They're saying, well, our online business is good enough, thanks very much. Very, very hard to buy a Michelle's patisserie cake online and have it consumed online, right? You don't get it from somewhere. Um, yep. You got to have a coffee at a, you know, Gloria Jean's, uh, you know, da- downloading a coffee on your on your your home printer, harder than you'd imagine. Uh, <laughs> so just just be mindful of of what options they have as well from that perspective. Yeah, um, I'm just have a quick squiz at the most recent uh, sort of strategy presentation. Mm. This is from March, so they did a 47 million dollar debt and equity recapitalization, yeah. raised 27 million dollars, you know. And this isn't because – this is just to, like, fix the balance sheet, right? Yeah. So, yeah. It, it, okay, so maybe maybe which things is, will if, be- Which, if they can do it, is great. If they can genuinely oh, yeah, yeah. fix it, then move yeah, yeah, on, yeah, then yeah. fantastic. But this, this is not growth capital. <laughs> and they say, so, first slide almost, you know, yeah. what, what are we going to use the money for? Well, we're going to reset and strengthen the balance sheet. Why? Because it's, it's in really bad shape. Mm. That's where we're going to do it. <laughs> Secondly, to pursue core business and inorganic growth opportunities, yeah. i.e., <laughs> They've got money in their pocket and they're, very, yeah, they're, they're right. telling you, they're telling you, not necessarily yeah. a bad thing. They're going to go buy yeah. something. They're going to go buy growth. Yeah. And, and you know, if you, you might get the growth, but you might overpay mm-hmm. or you might, might just buy something and doesn't deliver the kind of growth that you, that you expect. Right. These are, these are, again, we're talking about sort of, you know, coffees and cakes and bread. These are tough commodity style businesses. And just like, what? And again, I, I, now that I've said all of this, you watch the thing 10X from here, right? So <laughs> right. I, I, you've, got to, you've got to all take this with a grain of salt. But yeah. I, I just, yeah. and then on top of it, so they've said FY23 underlying EBITDA of 26 to 29 million. So let's thumb suck it. Net profit soften about half. This is very rough. Rough and ready live live analysis here for the listeners. So let's be conservative. Say thirteen million dollars in um, in net profit. Mm. Current market caps one hundred and thirty. So you're paying ten times earnings for a business that, by its nature, is probably pretty low growth. Yeah. And let's say they pay a fifty percent payout ratio. So you're getting dividends, right? So I'm not even beholden mm. on anything mm. else. It's just sort of like so. I'm going to get a five percent yield. Maybe they can grow earnings three, four, you know, sort of like, kind of like even under a reasonably decent scenario, I'm mm. still sort of nudging up towards double digit return. It's not, I mean, if you can get it, it's it's not terrible, but it's sort of like I always love to, as you know, look at things through the lens of a, I love the asymmetry, a positive asymmetry. And here I've got something that with pretty shaky history might turn around if it does I mean, I think you'd be lucky to get more than 10, 12, 15% per annum, like at best. That's, that's great if you can get it, but that's sort of the best you're likely to get. But if it doesn't and some of these purchases don't work out, some of these turnarounds don't turn around, well, I actually not only could be low single digit, it could be negative. And it's just sort of like, you know, I, want, I know I'm going to be wrong in a fairly high degree of a, a, a high rate. Mm. So I, I want the kind of scenarios that when I'm right, there's a lot of upside. And when I'm wrong, there's not too much downside. The heads I win, tails I don't lose too much kind of scenario. And I know I'm shooting from the hip here, but it's, 
it just it doesn't grab me. It doesn't grab me. Yeah, I. By the way, um, here's the so so here's a story of a business that uh, ha- has had its market cap go from twenty four million dollars in twenty nineteen to eighty three million dollars today, twenty twenty two. Right, so old data, but that that's what it was. At the same time, earnings per share have gone from eight cents to one cent per share, and the answer is because the share count went from one hundred eighty two million shares to two point one billion shares mm. so you got that you got that you know simple dilution as you've already talked about ram and that that's the business itself is one question the question is how much of it is left to shareholders and of that how much have you got given the massive dilution in uh, in in the, the share count so just be, be mindful of that the right thing to do is save the business by the way it would have died without it so you they had to do what they had to do and that's fine yeah. doesn't mean yeah. you have to necessarily buy it i don't have a strong view on rfg i owned shares for a while um I, I will say that I got lucky. I sold them before they fell uh, further. So that was, you know, I think I bought them at seven and a half cents and now they're at 5.2. It's hardly a, a victory either way. I thought the turnaround was possible. The other thing, by the way, is time can really be an enemy. So even if a turnaround eventually happens, how much longer would I have had to wait for it? Now, it's now, I don't know, a year and a half, two years further along. So if there is a turnaround, you're closer now than you were when I bought the shares and then subsequently sold them because I thought I was being silly. Um, but yeah, I went, oh, look, it looks too cheap. Exactly as you've asked, Rob. Looks too cheap. Maybe I should buy some shares. Maybe it's going to turn around. Maybe it will. Maybe it does. Um, I jumped in too early. There's no need to. If you miss the turnaround, you don't lose any money. If you're there too early, like I would have been, uh, I'd be down, what, 30% by now. Still waiting a year and a half later. Maybe it comes good. Uh, tempting to think a five cent stock only has to go up a little bit to make money and that's kind of true except the chance of it going up uh, and going up that proportion given there's 2.1 billion shares outstanding uh it, you just you, you realize how hard that is so i don't know mate it could go really well um i haven't yet seen sufficient evidence that it's starting to turn around the market will absolutely will absolutely lead the the reality so if you wait and the turnaround does happen you would have been better buying shares earlier rather than later but if you wait and the turnaround doesn't happen then you'll save yourself a lot of money. So if again, back to the original rules, uh, I'd want to see the turnaround actually happening and also have a very clear sense of, is this now a business you're going to hold forever? Or what, at what price do I believe the turnaround is completed and or the market's fully priced it in? And to Rams, well, it's already 10 times earnings. There may be earnings improved, right? So if earnings double, it's, like, it's a PE of five. Um, so work out what price you'd want to get out at. Um, but just think that through in advance. Um, a plug for Andrew's business, Strawman. You know, you talk about writing down your thesis a lot, Andrew. I think this is one where if you're going to do something, absolutely write down why, what you expect to happen, uh, what you think the the outcomes might look like, uh, you know, what success looks like, and and then what you would do at what point when it comes to valuation and selling, because those things are going to become really important, and you don't want to let yourself get carried away at that time. Can I can I, I do an, uh, an exercise in? Um uh, ego preservation here. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> so back when I was with you at the, at the mm-hmm. Fool, I ran a service called Dividend Investor. We recommended yeah. this dog's breakfast of a stock. At uh, I yep. just had to look it up. It was, it was late 2015. It was at $4.44. I did a share advisor too, by the way. I'm not sure of that time, but we, we're both guilty. We were, like, I mean, and again, like I, we yep. were both yep. attracted. Like yep. when you looked at the earnings per share, the dividends was that lovely, steady bottom, <laughs> rationalizing things oh, totally. to myself. Yeah. But it looked good, right? It looked good. Anyway, what was the lesson? Well, the lesson, the lesson was is that they, they were doing that by screwing over all the franchisees. And, and again, that, that came to a head. Here's the thing. Um, I eventually bit the bullet and and recommended the sell at $1.62. Yeah. In other words, 
That was a 63% loss. Mm-hmm. Um, why am I telling you this? <laughs> One, <laughs> because I've, I don't, you know, this is, this is not unusual, right? As I said before, I think any investor, you have plenty of examples of this yeah. and it's the average that matters, right? <laughs> but but, but I, what, I, what I, would, yeah. I would say is I'm very proud. Mm, that's not the right word. I'm very, what's the word? I'm very pleased I sold when I did because the share price is five cents now, right? Correct. Yes. And right. and so there's this saying that's like a stock that is down ninety percent <laughs> is one that was down eighty percent and then halved, right? And so it's just that the maths can mess with your mind a little bit here, in the sense that when you look at such this is very easy and and we this is a very easy trap for investors to fall into mm. i'm down so much it doesn't matter what's the difference i've <laughs> already lost 63 yeah, you know right, it's in right. the price you know and the reality is i could have held on to that and i would have taken that 63% loss and i could have turned it into a 99% loss yeah and even though i mean that money was gone right it was it was not coming back it was plain it was probably frankly if in, anything i should have i should have come to that conclusion a lot sooner than i did mm. but but my my point is is that the 30 odd 30 the third of it that was left i could have put this to something else that that did much better so so when you find yourself in a hole stop digging right like that's <laughs> that's the lesson here and it's i get it it sucks and it's and it's going to happen a lot but but the 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 mistake, and it was very clearly a mistake in hindsight, but it, at least there was some s- saving grace in the fact that it is better to acknowledge an error late than to not acknowledge it at all. And so much money has been lost mm. just through pure hopium and denial of reality. And I tell you what, a 65% loss sucks, a 99% loss sucks a hell of a lot more. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, yes, I think we're probably done. Yeah, I think we've, we've done we've done this to death. I think hopefully we've made the right point. By the way, a big plug for One Up on Wall Street. If you haven't listened, if you haven't read it, and you're listening to it. Uh, go and download a copy, buy a copy of One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. Excellent, excellent book. One Timeless. Of the really great foundational. Yeah, exactly. A real, really great foundational book too. I need to reread it. Head actually, yeah, yeah, it's really it's really really good. It's a, it's a nice. What I love about it, well, a couple of things. He obviously was successful himself, but he those six categories are useful because they. I don't think you should do all six, by the way. I don't do turnarounds. Um, it is an opportunity for an investor to do. So I'm not saying follow it necessarily, but he gives a really nice way of thinking about different investment opportunities, different frameworks to how to think about how you might consider them, analyze them, uh, both in terms of buying and selling. Um, it, it, again, it's just, I think you know, mental models are a really important part of investing. And there's, there's some really, really good ones in the, in the book overall. So give that a, a red hot go if you haven't already, or as you said, mate, if you haven't read it before, not for a while, uh, I do recommend you go back and reread it because it, it's it, excellent. It's one of my favorite quotes from that book is, uh, if I ever get a tattoo, it'll be something like this. It'll be, know what you own and why you own it. And I, I nice. love it. I love nice. it so much, you know? And, and that kind of encapsulates those different buckets that he puts things in. It's like, what do I actually own here? Like, yeah. what? Like, be, it's not a ticker. There's something that's here. But there's a variety of reasons you can own something, right? And and yeah. I just think it's, yeah. it's just encapsulates so much wisdom, that simple phrase. I'm a, I'm a big Peter. Lynch fan. It's good, isn't it? I think we're done. Yeah, Mate, we are uh, so done. Will you come back next Friday? You know it. Can't stop me. Well, I <laughs> have enjoyed being back with you. I hope you've enjoyed our podcast. Listen, two back to back that are probably longer than, well, definitely longer than average and certainly longer than a few recently. So there you go. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. If you're not still listening, you don't care what I say next. So <laughs> uh, until next time, full on. See ya. 
The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691.